0: Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla wa anta taj'alul hazna ida shi'atuhu sahla. as alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today we continue the final of this series about the four great giants. Among the many giants, we have covered Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi. The, basically you can say the grandfather of the four Imams, in other words. Followed by Imam Malik ibn Anas, followed by Imam Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i. And now we have reached Imam Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal. We've already covered about 10 minutes of his introduction and his bit of his background last week. And today, inshallah, we will continue the rest of the biography of this great Imam Ahmad, the fourth of the four madhahibs that, that survived till today. As a title, we gave to remind you, when you think of Imam Abu Hanifa and numan ibn Thabit, you think of the loving man. When you think of Imam Malik, you think of the man of Aura. When you think of Imam Shafi'i, he is the encyclopedist. He had knowledge in all areas. And when you think of Imam Ahmed, it's difficult, but I have three titles for him in one. He is the man of piety, determination, and resilience. Piety, determination, and resilience. This is what comes to your mind. When you hear the name Imam Ahmad, another thing that comes to your mind is Hadith. Imam Ahmad was the top in his rank in Hadith. And the people in Hadith have ranks, they have levels, and they're called names. The lowest of those names is called a Hafiz or Muhaddith Muhadith a Hafiz. Today we say Hafiz for someone who's memorized the Quran. But the real definition or title of Hafiz is a Hafiz of Hadith. Minimum for a hafiz, he or she would have known 30,000 hadiths with their chain of narrations complete with authentic authority. Imam Ahmad is said to have known, some narrations say, up to a million. That's mixed between sahih hadith and daif hadith. And he was able to know which ones from which. I don't recall which imam it was who taught his son 30,000 hadiths in, in that era. And after he learned 30,000 hadiths, his son was about 12 years old, said to him, son, now it's time to learn the authentic hadiths. Everything you learned was the da'if, weak or fabricated. Imam Ahmed, (coughs) the middle or the balanced amount that he is said to have memorized is 700,000. Allahu a'lam, that is a huge amount anyway, even if he memorized 100,000. And Imam Ahmad, he produced these hadiths in a famous book called Kitab al-Musnad. And today, scholars, for those of you who want to know, when they say this hadith is in a Musnad Ahmad, this is how they say Musnad Ahmad, there's no need to search which Ahmad it is. You don't going to ask which Ahmad. <coughs> or when they say Rawahu Ahmad, it is narrated by Ahmad. Automatically it is Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal. As-shaybani is his original tribal name. So they say, Musnad Ahmad. In the book, Musnad. Musnad, basically it comes from the word of Sanad, which is chains of narrations. So his book is carried on authenticity. It is a bit unusual, and I don't understand why. We have we have six books of hadith that are the top, and the most authentic of all. I don't understand why the Musnad of Ahmad did not make it in the top ranking of the six. It is not considered the, as Al-Kutub al sitta which are Al-Bukhari, Muslim, Al-Bayhaqi, Al-Nisa'i, Al-Tirmidhi and Abu Dawud. Musnad Ahmad is a reliable source. But for some reason, this one and some other books didn't make it. I don't understand why. Although the great scholars, including the, uh, uh, the contemporary scholars and later ones and many others, really, and Bukhari, all of them relied on Musnad Ahmad, because Bukhari and Muslim, all they, came, they all came after. Maybe for political reasons, maybe for other reasons, Allahu A'lam. Maybe because all these other six books had most of the hadith that are already in Musnad, and they just put it into these new books and revised them again, Allahu A'lam. But nevertheless, when someone says, Musnad Ahmad, Rawahu Ahmad, then you know He is a muhadith, a man of authority. When you say hadith narrated by him, then it is a strong hadith insha'Allah. He went to great lengths. My brothers and sisters, I said he is a man of piety, of determination and resilience. Piety, taqwa. Although all the scholars were men of piety and taqwa, when we say he is a man of piety, we're talking about where he stands out. Beyond measure to the point of what we call wara. You know, there are people who abstain from haram. They abstain from haram, from major sins, but they still do minor sins. And there are people who abstain from minor sins, which is, mashallah, more taqwa. Because taqwa means to defend yourself and protect yourself from haram as much as you can. And there are people who not only protect themselves from many minor sins and repent quickly, but also from the halal things, which they fear may lead to haram. And this is called wara. And we gave an example of Imam Abu Hanifa once, when he used to make clothing And sometimes he'd make time for the women One of them was sitting on a chair And then she left and the, young, and the man came and sat in her place immediately Imam Abu Hanifa said Don't sit in her place You should wait until the spot where she sat on Goes cool Cools down This is wara. This is a form of wara. Or when Umar ibn Khattah Heard about Hudayfa That he married a Jewish woman And he said to him, divorce her. He said, why, Ya Imam, halal or haram? He said, halal. But you're an example. And I fear that in the future, men, mu'mineen will take you as a role model and say, well, Hudayfa did it so easily. So therefore, we'll marry from the kitabiyat, from the women of the people of the book, Christians and Jews. And because they have khalaba, these women, they don't have uh, the degree of hijab. And the degree of modesty that Muslim women have, especially in those days. I'm not talking about today. We, things are getting out of hand, unfortunately. But in those days, was much different. And they'll start looking at these women, they'll attract them, and they'll start marrying them, and leave the pure, pious, Muslim-believing women aside. That's what I fear. Hudhaifa divorced her based on taqwa. And this is called wara yani. Imam Ahmad was a man of determination. You're going to find out today. What a determined man. Someone who makes a decision and sticks to it to the end. And this is really a quality of men. And really a lot of us are <laughs> a speck when I explain Imam Ahmad's determination. Nothing stopped him, mashallah. You understand, and probably to some of you may seem a little bit extreme, but... This was his way. Every scholar was known to be extra cautious in a particular area. Imam Malik never lifted his legs off the ground because he, out of respect for the Prophet ﷺ's body in the grave, he never left Medina in his life and died there. This is what he's known for. Imam Ahmad, you'll see his determination. Resilience. Resilience is when something after a calamity or a hardship, they come back straight. It doesn't affect them. So calamities and resilience comes from the meaning of when a rod is bent, and then it just goes back. Rasulullah described the believer with resilience like a palm tree, and he described the arrogant person who disbelieves in Allah and arrogant like the cedar tree, the cedar, so the arz tree. The palm tree it bends with the wind, no matter how strong the wind bends it, it'll its head will touch the ground. In the stronger storm. And after the storm is gone, the palm tree goes straight back up as it was before. As if it hadn't been harmed. As for the cedar tree, Al-Arz is known to be a solid, uh, stubborn tree. The wind comes really hard, and it'll fight the wind. And when, until it breaks. And when it breaks, there's nothing left. So Imam Ahmed was resilient. Man of determination and a man of piety. Unlike all the other Imams, we said that every imam had a turning point in their life. Meaning there was a time in their life where something happened and then they went into the world of scholarly knowledge and religion. Except for Imam Ahmed. He was different to the rest. We cannot find at any time in his life where there was something that turned him around, made him go into the... In his history we find that from, a, from when he was a baby to when he was a, a child, he was always raised on religion and knowledge and the circles of deen. Why? We mentioned last <coughs> week. His background is that he was an orphan. His father was a soldier. His name was Muhammad. However, he's not named Ahmed ibn Muhammad. He's named after his grandfather, Ibn Hanbal. And he was a scholar as well. And he, was, he had a, a, a very strong position. And he was an activist against the, uh, the government, against the Umayyad dynasty with the Abbasid dynasty he was a governor and he was well known for his work and his mujahada his struggle and his striving in order to keep things upright so that's why when a person they name a person after a famous person with a great name and his grandfather had a great name and great, greater purpose than his father his father Muhammad died at about the age of 30 as a soldier in the battlefield in Palestine As for Imam Ahmed, he had no brothers, he had no sisters, he had no relatives around him except one person. One person was left in his life and that was indeed his mother. This mother of his was also from the tribe of Shaiban. Bani Shaiban, we said that they were people of resilience and determination, they're the only ones who in the history of the Arabs before Islam beat the army of the Persians. And so she came from that line, a strong, determined mother. She dedicated her life for Imam Ahmad to learn in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And she raised him on absolute piety, modesty, adab in all its sense. She gave up her life. She did not remarry after his father. Because she wanted to dedicate her whole energy and life on her son Ahmad. You won't believe this, but Imam Ahmed, because he loved his mother so much, and he knew the sacrifice she had done for him, he was determined, this is where the termination now starts to develop. The first thing I want to say is, he left to repay her back, he did not marry so long as his mother was alive. Because he also wanted to dedicate his time and his years for his mother. For Allah first, then his mother, until she died, rahmatullah alayha, and he was at the age of 40. He married at the age of 40, subhanAllah. His mother was a widow at the age of about 20 years old. You can imagine that. And subhanAllah, this reminds me of my grandmother. I'm not here to boast, but I hope, Ya Rab that she was like that. It reminds me in the same way. But this mother is far beyond her, subhanAllah, raising an imam like this. Imam Ahmad refuses to marry for his mother. If you sacrifice your life for me, I will sacrifice mine for you. Because if I get married, I don't want anything to be in your heart, even though I don't mean it, I may seem like I'm favoring my wife, and I don't want to give you the wrong impression, my mother. This is now the act of piety coming in. Even though he doesn't have to do that. But this was the Imam Ahmad, I'm explaining to you. His personality See how Allah chose these four Imams And made them for a wisdom which he only knows Everyone has a different personality In an area which they become the ideal role models We can't be exactly like them Maybe we can But they're ideal in a particular area One more than the other Imam Ahmad then married at the age of 40 His first wife was Aisha Um Salih Um Salih because his first son's name was Salih She lived with him for 30 years Listen to what Imam Ahmad says about his relationship with her to his students. He says, Umm Salih lived with me as a wife for 30 years. In these 30 years, her and I never disagreed on a single word. Now, that's the ideal thing. I'm not going to go into the reasons why husband and wife disagree. But there is a system in marriage which Allah placed. And an order. And the man has his role and the woman has the role. And if they don't respect that role, then there will be mayhem and chaos. The husband is the leader of the home. The wife follows and obeys him except in things which Allah has forbidden. Even if it be against her own desires. And he must show her love and care and compassion in return. But if one of them is broken, the other is. But if the pillar of the home is broken, the whole home is broken. However, this is what the Imam says. I heard a joke, uh, a friend of mine, Sheikh Nevaid, who came down here, he says a husband and his wife, modern day husband and wife, in the bedroom, meaning obviously where else are they going to be, A husband says to his wife what do you think if I became the khalifa? She says you, anyone but you I'll never follow you and I'll go and live up somewhere in some valley in a mountain than to follow your reign because you'll destroy everything then she says to him if I climbed Mount Everest what would you do? wouldn't you be proud of me? what would you do? He said, I will climb all the way up and I will stand with you and I'll give you a small push. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> As for today, not to have a go at it, our sisters, just modern day. Another joke, and I heard it from another uh, Dr. Ha- Hashim, Allah barik fi, khayran, he says, uh, before the husband and wife, when they're engaged, the husband does all the talking. When, when, there are, when he comes to ask for a hand, they say that the man, he starts all the talking, because she's shy and all of that stuff, right? That's what it's meant to be. That's how it's meant to be, right? She's shy and he's got to start out with talking. So he does all the talking, she listens. When they get engaged, she does all the talking, and then he listens. And when they get married, they both do the talking and the neighbors listen. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the modern day catastrophe we're living in. After Aisha, his wife, died, after she died, Imam Ahmad married another wife, her name was Raihana, and from her was his second son, Abdullah. Salih and Abdullah became scholars and muhaddithin Unlike the other scholars, like Imam Malik for example, we said that his son didn't like the knowledge and he liked to you know, round up pigeons and catch pigeons. It was his daughter who, was, who became a faqir. With him, Saleh and Abdullah were the scholars who took after their father. And unlike the children of the other scholars, their students are the ones who wrote about their madhab and their life and their biography. For Imam Ahmad, it was his two sons who wrote about him. I want you to imagine now, what kind of a relationship would this father have with his two sons? His two sons have wrote everything we know about today almost. The way he walked, the way he stepped, where he went, how he treated. How we it means that this father went almost everywhere he went, his children were with him. And they became muhaddithin. He was a friend to his sons. <coughs> Imam Ahmed, after Rayhana, she died as well, and he lived on. He married again and he had two children after the age of 74 years. He died at 77. 74 is still having children. And his kids were still babies when he died, rahmatullahi alayhi. It is uh, There's narration about uh, Imam Ahmad's son telling us a story. He says, Whenever a good man came to visit my father at home, my father would call me to want me to meet him. He would say, Say, salamu alaykum to my friend here. And he would say to his son, I want you to be like this man. And I mentioned last time, it is to our children and to younger children, what you say to them at a young age, they put it in their head. You look at a child and you say to them, SubhanAllah, your face looks like the face that is going to memorize the Qur'an. And suddenly you see them. Your face looks like a face of a leader. And watch them what they become. Imam Ahmad had many other children as well. I didn't mention it, but they were Salih, Abdullah, Zainab. Al Hassan al Hussein. Al Hassan al Hussein died when they were born. After them came Al Hashim, then Muhammad, then Saeed. Saeed became the judge of Kufa. Sa'id stood out after Abdullah and after Salih. And a friend of mine today he was cutting my hair. He's among us. Where is he? Brother Murad. He says to me, having many children, you don't know which one will lead you to Jannah. And here we have Imam Ahmad. You've got his first two, and then he had many children, and finally the last one, almost, who was Saeed, who became a judge later on, a scholar, a alim. Allah mentions in the Qur'an that people want more boys. And Allah gives girls to whoever he wishes, and boys to whoever he wishes, and then he says, La Tadri Ayyuhuma aqrabu naf'a You don't know which one of them are going to benefit you more. The boy or the girl, the first one or the second one, or the third one, or which one. As for Imam Ahmad, what he looked like, he was an Arab, tall, dark, he dyed his hair with hinna, he was very clean, well groomed. He wore a cap like this one, and he wove it with his own hands, so he used to sew his own clothing, like Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I want you to listen very carefully what's happening here. al Hassan al-Husayn, the grandchildren of the Prophet Imam Ahmad was a copycat of the Prophet. ﷺ. He is known to be so strict in following the Prophet ﷺ to to the extreme. He was similar, he reminds me of Abdullah ibn Umar, He was like that. That even after the death of the Prophet, out of love for the Prophet, ﷺ, if he used to they used to see him do strange things. He would go in this pathway and he'd make big footsteps. To deliberately to put his foot here or there. And then when I asked him, Why do you do that? he would say, Al Sallallahu my friend. When I was a child, he used to walk here and I'm walking the same footsteps. One time when he reached this place, he used to duck. And I asked him, Why do you duck? He says, There used to be a tree here and it had a branch. Abdullah ibn Umar. He says, I walked with the Prophet Sallallahu once and he ducked away from the branch. I just remember him when I get here and I duck. Now we don't all have to be like that, but subhanAllah, each Sahaba and each Imam has these qualities that it's out of love yani. and if you have that Alhamdulillah Imam Ahmad never imposed his views upon anybody he followed them as determined and he did not care what anybody thought or said about him he was if I could make another title for him I would call him the man of absolute independence absolute he thought something was right he'd do it of course, in accordance with evidence, and proper way. If he thought this Imam was a great scholar, even if he was not popular, he would sit with him and learn. And you're going to find out, this is how he became the student of Imam al Imam Ahmed uh, was a poor person financially, very poor. And he was born like that, lived like that, died as a poor person. Poor in finance, not poor in heart or soul. He never accepted any gifts from anyone. I'm uh, sorry, he never accepted any money from anyone, even if it was... Borrowing, any gift he took, he had to take it because Prophet ﷺ used to take it. But he would never leave a gift out without returning a favor back. Absolutely, the next day sometimes, as much as he can. He wanted to prove to the people, listen, I'm not a poor, I don't want your charity. I'm like you and treat me like that, and I will do the same thing for you. He scarcely ate fruit, unlike Imam Malik. Most of the time, uh, he ate bread, and he used to moist it with water. I would eat bread. And salt, water and salt. If he ate a watermelon, he'd eat it with bread, or bread with cucumber, something like that. This is how Imam Ahmad lived. And here if I were to make a fourth title for him, or a fifth title, I would say the true ascetic. Ascetic means he did not want anything of this world. Different views, subhanAllah, from these, these different Imams to tell there is flexibility in Nadine, but the reason why he did that is because he was a man of wara, of piety. His children weren't exactly like him, but he loved them and they loved him, and they were great scholars too. And Allah will reward him for what he has done. If he cooked any time, he would not add garlic or spices. Not because he didn't like garlic or spices, but because uh, he didn't see it as a source of enjoyment to him. He didn't want to enjoy too much. didn't want to get it to his head. He memorized the whole Qur'an at a young age. And he was among the few youngsters who read and wrote. Not many people who were literate. Uh, because he read and wrote, the people and the women especially who had uh, husbands who went, to were soldiers, going jihad. <coughs> they would get Imam Ahmad as a young boy. I'm imagine he's 12, 13 years old. And he would write. They'd tell him, please write to our husbands. So he'd be the person who wrote. Uh, his uncle... He used to work for the government and he used to write letters to the khalifa, Harun Rashid. And a long time passed and Harun, and Harun Rashid sent a letter to his uncle saying, where are all the letters? You're meant to report to me. He's writing reports about people, what they're doing, what they're not doing. So like spying. And when, Imam, when he, the uncle said, I sent them all through, through Ahmed. He said, I never received anything. So they called Ahmad along. Imagine 12, 13 year old boy now coming before the Khalifa and he's asking him, where are all the letters? Uncle says, I gave you them all from years, five years ago. He says, I threw them all in the Tigris River. He said, why? He said, in it are backbiting and spying on other people. And this is haram. I refuse to do it. The uncle got a little bit upset. The Khalifa looked at him and said, don't. He said, if this young boy has that much piety, how can we compare ourselves to him? He is an example to us. Khalifa Harun al-Rashid said this. At 14 years of age, Imam Ahmad was a hafiz. Remember what we said about hafiz? Which is 30,000 hadiths plus, or some say 1,000 hadiths plus, Allahu A'lam. He was a fantastic writer. When he'd go and take the letters of the women to their soldiers, their husbands, the husbands want to write back. A lot of them couldn't write, so they got Imam Ahmed to write, they had a young child. And they'd write sometimes words of romance, love words. I love you, and when I come, I'd like to do this and do that. And Imam Ahmed would write, and he would not write these words. Every time he say, love you, he'd take it out. <laughs> SubhanAllah, because in his nature, subhanAllah, he thought, how am I going to go to this woman and sit in front of this stranger woman, and I'm going to read to her because she can't read, and he says, I love you, and when I come, I'm going... Subhanallah, man of piety is sitting there telling a strange woman these things he couldn't. So he used to omit them, <laughs> subhanallah. And that's why I said, the man of piety. Everybody envied this teenager. You know, when parents, they wish that their children could be like a particular young man. This was Imam Ahmed. Everyone looked at him and mothers and fathers say i wish my children were like him as a teenager this was imam ahmed everybody loved him now there's something that i want to mention here and uh, in the modern day it has been lost wallahi with great sorrow i don't know if it's the wife's faults or the husband's faults or the society's faults or whatever it is imam ahmed was what what you would call today a mummy's boy which is a wrong s- statement He would do anything she told him. Early in the morning, before Fajr, he would get up and wear his abaya and everything, and he would head off, wanted to head off to the masjid. Why? Not going to meet someone, a girl, or going out with his friends, or going out to audhu billah. Wallahi no. He was getting dressed to meet the imam so he can get knowledge of them before anyone gets to them. That's where. Any friend he took, It was because he wanted to learn something of him. And when he became his friend, he was dutiful to him. Any imam that he chose, anywhere he went, was for knowledge, was for piety, was to learn. He'd get up early in the morning before Fajr to go, and his mother would say to him, Son, don't go. It's dark and I fear for your safety. Wait until Fajr time. And the son would always sit down. And he never left his home at night before Fajr, because his mother didn't like it. She was afraid for him. Even though he could go, there's nothing wrong. But he obeyed his mother. Never argued with her about anything. Today, if, if we say that to someone who said, Mom didn't let me out. And we're talking about a young man here, 17, 18, 20 years old. We ridicule them and tease them. Your mom and dad control you. You listen to your mom and dad. Aren't you a man? Imam Ahmed, when you see now what kind of a man he was, we would swallow our tongues. And When you know the value of mothers and fathers, you will swallow your tongue when you become a mother and father, when your children are old enough and they're strong enough. You're going to wish... Because, for those of you who neglect your parents or those of you who strive to tease others about that, Allah says these are the days. Every person gets his day. You're not a father and mother now, you'll become a father and mother one day and you're going to have to face the same thing. His friend Ibn Jarir, also a learned man, he said one day, Come across the Tigris River so we can meet and learn. He said, No. He said, why? He said, my mother told me not to cross the river. I know, but she's afraid for me. I want to, I want to obey her in that sense. He says, but just do it. It's no, no issue. He says, no, Mum said no. Some people say, my wife prevented me. Why don't you say, my mother prevented me? There was a scholar by the name of Haytham, who said, if this young man lives long enough, he will be evidence against the people of misguidance. And truly, he became the evidence, my dear brothers and sisters. I'd like to stop here before I go on for a second. And I want to just inform you about something. Who were his teachers? His first teacher was, guess who? Huh? His father. No, his father died when his father was 30 years old, and he was an orphan, his son. So his son was still about 1 or 2 years old. His name, his first teacher was Abu Yusuf Al-Qadi who was the first student of Imam Abu Hanifa you know when people make this difference in Abu Ahmad ibn Hanbal and Abu Hanifa they say they're so different right and the Hanafis teach the Hanbalis te- the Hanbalis teach the Hanafis all this rubbish that now today we are doing well his great and first teacher was Abu Yusuf Al-Qadi the great student of Imam Abu Hanifa that was his first pieces of knowledge which he took and the adab and the piety which he took from him his second teacher was Haytham ibn Jumail from Antioch, and he was also a Hafiz. And he is the one who said, "If this young boy lives, he will become an influential person to this Ummah." The third teacher he had was Yazid ibn uh, uh, Huraway Al-Wasit at the time of the Khalifa Al-Wasit, <coughs> and he was a very powerful and influential teacher, Yazid. So much so that when the trial came, which I'm going to talk about today, the Khalifa Al-Ma'moon did not dare to stand up against whoever said that the Qur'an was created. I'm going to talk about that. While Yazid was alive, his teacher, until Imam Yazid died, then the Khalifa went out and spread this false teaching, which we'll talk about in a minute. So this great Imam was also his teacher. As for the fourth teacher, was Abdul Rahman Ibn Mahdi the scholar who encouraged a shafii He was the scholar who encouraged Imam a shafii to write his book, Al-Risala. We mentioned that last week, or the week before. His fifth teacher was a, a teacher from uh, Basra, from the heartland of Bani Shayban, from the original tribe of Imam Ahmad. And his name was Waki'a ibn al-Jarrah. Waki'a, whom we mentioned last time, is a famous one, otherwise known uh, um, also uh, another name which we mentioned last week. He is the one who made Imam Abu Hanifa go into the channel specializing in hadith. His sixth teacher was Abdul Razak Ibn Human from Mecca. Seventh teacher was Imam Shafi'i from Mecca. And it was Imam Shafi'i who was his greatest and most influential and loved and loved teacher of all of them Imam Shafi who is called Nasr al-Hadith the victor of Hadith and Imam Ahmad was so impressed by him the story goes like this in Mecca Imam Ahmad went there one day and he was still in his uh, you know 20s or so so he's a young man Imam Shafi was still in his early times wasn't very popular yet and he had a friend by the name of Yahya ibn uh, SubhanAllah, I'll mention his name inshallah soon His name is Yahya ibn Ma'in And he was his friend in in lessons, in study When they used to go to Mecca There was a teacher named Sufyan ibn Uyayna You may have heard of him He was the popular one All the people went to his circle in Mecca There would be many circles and he would go to him So one day, uh, his friend Yahya ibn Ma'in He noticed that Imam Ahmad was not in the circle with them With Imam Sufyan ibn Uyayna Sufyan ibn Uyayna, an extraordinary scholar Of his time and even till today he looked and he saw Imam Ahmad, the young man, sitting in one of the in the circle of Imam al shafii Now at that time, Yahya did not know who Imam al shafii wasn't popular yet. He just looked like a Bedouin, just like a better one, Imam Shafi'i. He thought, what's Imam Ahmad sitting with a Bedouin? He went there and he sat with Ahmad and just a few people around this circle. He said, yeah, Ima, What are you doing, Ahmad? He said, Come here, come here. He said to Yahya. He said, Listen to this man. He said, But Sufiya, Imam Sufiya, because just listen, just listen for a second. He sat down and listened. And he said, it's impressive. He said, but why did you leave Imam Sufyan? i Oyaina to come to a man, a better one. He said, with Imam Sufyan, if you listen to him and you missed out something, you can ask him tomorrow. As for this man, the words you hear for him, if you don't hear him first time, you will never hear them from anyone again. This man is something different. Yahya said, but okay. He went and sat back with Sufyan. Afterwards, only in a matter of about two or three years, Imam al-Shafi'i's circle was the largest in all of Mecca, and everybody left all the circles and sat with Imam al-Shafi'i. What does that tell you about Imam Ahmed? He had, a, he had, a, he had a, uh, a foresight. Be able to look at someone and tell if he's a person of knowledge and wisdom or not before anyone else. And so he became his great teacher, Imam al-Shafi'i. Of, uh, the eighth teacher among them was Sufyan ibn Uyayna as well. The ninth teacher was Yahya ibn Sa'id al qattan same status as others, until Ahmed became a scholar of his own. My brothers and sisters in Islam. Imam Ahmed, at the age of 22 years old, now you're going to see the man of determination. 22 years old, he, once, he left Baghdad from Iraq, and he traveled to different places in his 20s, all around the world, including Kufa, Yemen, Medina, Mecca, five times. And how did he go to them? All of them walking. You're asking me if he went on a camel? Not even on a camel. You're asking me if he went on a mule? Not even on a mule. Not on a horse. Not even on a sheep or a goat because it can't hold him. He went walking. Walking. Why? Because he had financial difficulty. So much so, that one time, he went from Baghdad to Mecca. On his way he got lost. And I want you to imagine, (coughs) lost on his way. And he'd ask people, please guide me to Mecca, please guide me to Medina. Then he would ask him, why? He would say, I want to go do hajj. Allahu Akbar, to do hajj. Every year almost he did hajj for his mother. And in Mecca, that's where he met Imam Shafi, as I told you before. His famous friends were Ishaq also, Ishaq ibn Rahawai and Yahya ibn Mu'in. He had absolute independence. When I said he sat with Imam Shafi, he didn't listen to anybody else. Is he popular, is he not popular, has he got the largest circle or not? You know how today we hear about an Imam coming, he's going to give us a scholarly lecture. Everybody goes to him because his name is known. Or because so many people listen to his lectures. Or he goes off his head in lectures. Or he doesn't go off his head, he's just very well known or whatever. His style. But Imam Ahmed wasn't like that. He looked deeper than that. His words are words that you cannot buy. You cannot get them from anywhere. This is a man of knowledge. Even if we were two or three people sitting in his circle. And this was Imam. Whatever people said, he knew this was the right man and he sat with him. One time by Sheikh Abdul Razak, Ibn Humam, as I said, he's one of his teachers. Sheikh Abdul Razak lived in Yemen. And one time he went with his friend uh, Yahya. And they went to do Hajj first. And he said, let's go to Yemen to learn of the Sheikh Abdul Razak. I hear good things about him. Let's go and learn of him. He said, how are we going to go? He goes, we'll go walking together. Talking about two months' journey, two months. He said, Alright, we'll go together. But he said, let's go to Hajj first. So they went to Hajj and there subhanAllah, coincidentally, they met Shaykh abd Razzaq ibn Humam also doing Hajj. Yahya, his friend looks at him. What do you think he said? He said, Oh, here he is. Look, we don't have to go to Yemen anymore. We can sit here and learn off him for a few weeks. So he met Sheikh Razzaq and said, Would you mind if we come to your home next day? And he said, Fine. Imam Ahmad was silent. When the Shaykh went, Imam Ahmad looked at his friend disappointed. And he said, why did you say that? He said, here he is. The knowledge has come to us. Allah brought him to us. He said, when I made my intention to go to Yemen to learn of Shaykh Abdul Razak, I intended to do so. I do not want to feel embarrassed before my Lord after I had promised him something and now I go against it. I am going to Yemen. But ya Shaykh, my friend, he goes, I'm going to Yemen. Yahya stayed back and he went to Yemen on his own. salaam <laughs> <laughs> He reached Yemen and he learned of him over there instead of in Mecca, subhanAllah. Man of determination, as I said. On his way, because he was so poor, I'll tell you extra to that. On his way, he was so poor, with no one around him, he ran out of money. What did he do? He had to work as a porter, luggage carrier. Imagine that the imam carrying luggage for women and children and men to make his money so that he can go and reach knowledge. So he hired himself. Why are you going to Yemen, ya Imam? Because I want to learn knowledge. Why not in Mecca? Because I made the intention. Uh, why are you working like this? Because I need money to get there. Why are you poorer? He said, for knowledge, your, for knowledge you would do anything and your status of what you do, is not. that's not how you are compared or leveled or evaluated. Your value is something other than how much money you have and what job you have. Some say it's extremism, but however, he never imposed his views on anybody. He tolerated every single person. Tolerate means I understand your opinion, but I do not necessarily agree with it, and I'm not going to insist on my opinion upon yours, or you insisted on me. I understand it, and inshallah will live in acceptance and peace. That's the bigger picture. Just because I disagree, or you say, we don't have to divide. Imam Al-Shafi'i said to someone just because we disagree does that mean we have to divide we are still brothers and sisters we are still brothers in Islam and also sisters in Islam Imam Ahmad prayed every day 300 rak'ah How many rak'ah yeah. 300 rak'ah And that was when he was young when he became 77 years of age he reduced his his 300 rak'ah to how many he became sick and old Have a guess Huh 200 it's a good guess, 150. 150 rak'ah when he was 77 years old and only because he had grown old and sick. He used to fast a lot, read the Qur'an a lot. Every day, every, one day on, one day off, even when he was being tortured in the great fitna, which we're going to talk about very, very soon, he was fasting in Ramadan while being whipped and his back was seeping and blood with remnants of the ropes which he was whipped with inside his flesh. And he would not break his fast and the people would give him water. Those who were whipping him say, drink. And he would say, Wallahi, I will not drink, I'm fasting. I wish to meet my Lord if I die like this, I wish to meet him fasting. Man of determination, ya this is something unbelievable. When the whipping increased, he could not pray as much. So again, he relied on dua. So he couldn't pray as much, but he made dua. There was always an alternative for this man, Imam. Even when he was dying on his deathbed, he was unconscious. And Abdullah, his son, heard his father saying, Not yet, not yet. And his son said, What do you mean, you don't want to meet Allah yet? Then when he awoke, he said to him, The shaytan came to me saying to me, قَدْ minni Ahmad, You have gone away from my trickery. I, can't, I couldn't do anything to you. And I said to him, Not yet. The war between you is not over yet. You're trying to trick me so I can put my guards down. Imam Ahmad, even to the last minute, determined. said, the war between me and you is not over yet. Don't flatter me. Imam Ahmad had blessings and miracles which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given him. Which, other than what he gave to the prophets, karamat, which he gives to his friends and his awliyas. And his righteous (coughs) servants. And among them was Imam Ahmad. But before I go into that, I'll inform you now of the mihna and the trial which he went through the trial in his time. He went through a trial more than any other imam went through. And when I say Imam Ahmed, Imam Ahmad is not remembered mostly for his hadith or his fuqah. Yes, he was at the level of uh, what you would call uh, Amir, Amir al-Mu'mineen. That was the, When you say Amir al Khalifa, remember we said levels of hadith, you had the lowest is Hafiz, and the highest is Amir al-Mu'mineen. So you call Amir al for Khalifa, and Amir al-Mu'mineen for one who reaches... Uh, a beyond measure mastery in hadith like professor okay one of absolute level is called Amir so he was Amir in hadith Uh, he was known however for this trial and I would say that maybe a lot of people will agree that if Imam Ahmad did not go through this trial maybe he would not be remembered as much not to degrade the other Imams But to say that Imam Ahmad, as all the others, were known for something, this is what Imam Ahmad was known for. This absolute resilience and determination, this jihad which he went through, which very scarcely will you hear about people who went through this. Over what? Over something that is not worth a cent. What was it? Like our usual days today, we bring out a little issue, and we turn it into a mountain. And we cut off ties and we uh, move away and we make divisions or become into sects and we build different mosques and we call ourselves different names as if all these are different versions of Islam. When I say different mosques, I mean for the purpose of sectarianism, not for the purpose of convenience. Having a mosque here and there and there for convenience or different languages is fine. But because of sectarianism, I'm on the right, you're on the wrong, I'm going to build a mosque and call it a new name. This is what sectarianism is all about. Imam Ahmed was different to that. He went through this trial of this issue called Khalqul Quran, The creation of the Qur'an There was a group called Mu'tazila, And they started off even before From the time of Abu Hanifa But they never came up until really Until the time of Imam Ahmad Where they really started to show Now I'm going to cut the story a little bit short For the lack of time This is our last lecture We don't have too much time So there are areas which I'm not going to mention And I'm not going to explain Mu'tazila Or the عقيدة If you want you can read about them In fact, it's all been dealt with. To go into it is senseless and benefits us nothing. Let's talk about what benefits us, and that is to stand for truth, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and while standing for the truth being tortured, while being tortured, forgiving those who tortured you. For the sake of Allah. I'm going to mention, this is the moral from Imam Ahmed. Many imams at his time, there existed thousands and thousands of imams, (coughs) He had to be tortured and went through this ordeal over three consecutive khalifas. One died. It was a khalifa uh, Al-Mu'tasim, followed by his brother, Al-Ma'moon, followed by his son, Al-Wathiq, and then it stopped. Now, what happened? He this idea of Khalq uh, al-Qur'an. This group of people came along and they said the Qur'an is not the word of Allah. It is the creation of Allah, because speech is created, and speech was came after Allah. Therefore, the Qur'an is speech, and it is created like you and me. It is not the words of Allah, which means that it can it it, it can be. Uh, it can err, it can make mistakes, because every creation of Allah is fallible. Fallible, it makes mistakes, it's not perfect. So therefore they're implying the words of Allah are not perfect. And they said, they used their words and their evidences of philosophy in al Kalam, which they took from Greek philosophy and made this new idea, which no scholar or sahabi or prophet ever said, or even came into before. They came out in the time of Harun Rashid, One man and Harun al-Rashid killed him on the spot. Then he died, al-Khalifa al-Ma'moon came up. And then al-Ma'tasim, his brother, followed by his son al-Wathiq. So al-Ma'moon was the first. He first, he didn't believe in that. But there was a a man who came out, he was a faqih, he understood scholar in religion, but he was affected by the philosophy and dialectics of the Greeks and so on and so forth. He made up this thing and he came to the Khalifa al mamun and he convinced him about the Khalq of the Qur'an. Al-Khalifa al mamun unfortunately, even though he was a very learned man, very learned man in secular knowledge and an educated and academic, he influenced him and he believed what he believed. At first, Al-Khalifa mamun did not impose it on people. He said, I believe in this, but he didn't impose it. But then this man came back to him and said to him, I can't recall his name, but he said to him, no, you have to tell the people, this is part of aqid and I have to agree on it. And if they don't agree, it is disbelief. So then after three years, Al-Ma'mun stood up on this rampage. He said, everybody must accept it. And he came to all his workers and his government officials and he said, start with my judges and start with the scholars that work for me. They have to believe in it. And he got one of his his, uh, secretaries and he said to him, Ask one question. Ask them this. What do you say about the Qur'an? If they don't answer a clear statement, ask them. Do you say the Qur'an is created or not created? If they say created, let them go. If they say not created, report it to me. And this is what he did. About 30,000 imams. It's halal, because of their lives yielded. They all said the Qur'an is created. Only a number of them. Some of them, they did a trick. They said, the Qur'an, the Zabur, the Zams, and the Torah, these four are created, meaning my four fingers. The government understood, the Khalifa liked it, and he said, well, okay, this is called Tawriya. say it. Tawriya. say it. And I want the Imams even just to say that. Finally came Imam Ahmad and three friends of his who were contemporaries. They came to him and they asked him the question, What do you say? They said, The Quran is the word of Allah, not created. So they put him, he reported it. The Khalifa ordered that they be put in chains and brought as prisoners. When they came to that, two of his friends, the ulama, they yielded. They said, no, no, it's created. They couldn't withstand it. Our family, our children, and they were left behind. Then it was Imam Ahmed and his favorite friend, Yahya ibn Ma'in. Yahya ibn Ma'in was resilient. They put the chains in him and on their way. But, even Yahya yielded. But there was, I think it was Yahya, or another friend of his, Subhanallah, on their way, I think it was Ishaq, Ishaq, on their way, Ishaq died, from the travel. As for Imam Ahmad, he was still alive. On his way, Imam Ahmad, this is now with the karamat come in, on his way he made a du'a, he said, Oh Allah, Allahumma la tajma'ni bil ma'moon, Oh Allah, do not let me meet ma'moon. The second day, they came back, and they said, you have to be returned. Why? He said, your sentence has been suspended. The Khalifa died. Wallahi, this is true. The Khalifa got sick and he died. But before that, Al-Mu'tasim, his brother, took over. Al-Mu'tasim was not a scholar. He was a military commander. So he was tough, he was ruthless. And his brother, Al-Ma'mun, he loved him a lot. Al-Ma'mun, before he died, requested him, he said, Make sure that there is no alim or judge except that you make sure that he believes and says that the Qur'an is created. Al-Mu'tasim did not care about anything else. All he wanted is to carry out his brother's order. My brother said it, I'm going to do it. I don't care who it is. They're going to die if they don't say it. Or basically going to be tortured and imprisoned. And so he carried it out again. And so Imam Ahmad was brought into chains one more time. And he was brought before the Khalifa in Baghdad. It was hot. It was deadly. It was Ramadan. Al-Mu'tasim was fasting. Imam Ahmad was fasting. He was put into the prison. And then he was brought out. On the first day, now the, the, the scholar that died, who, was, who started this rumor, another one took over. His name was Ahmad ibn Abi Du'ad. Ahmad ibn Abi Du'ad, a scholar, that had been affected by this thing called dialectic intellectuals. They gave interpretations of things which the mind cannot comprehend. And there's nothing wrong with reasoning. There's nothing wrong with using the logic in understanding things. All the scholars did this. But the line is drawn when you go into areas that the mind cannot comprehend. These are things divine, beyond our ability. When the Christians said, Jesus is the Son of God, they went into areas, or the Trinity, into areas the mind cannot accept, even till today, the biggest horror for a Christian who knows his Christianity Religion will say to you, the Trinity is my horror. I don't want to talk about it. Because beyond the mind. Or the Jews, when they went into their Al-Mil-Kalam, and these people went into areas that the mind cannot comprehend about Allah Himself. All the scholars and the Sahabas and the Prophets never spoke about it. And so the debate began. Imam Ahmad was brought into chains before the Khalifa. At first, Al-Matasim tried to yield. He said, Ya Imam, please, you are a respected person. I'll let you go. Say what they are saying. Say what your friend said, Yahya. Yahya bin He said, al Quran. He says, I respect him, and if it wasn't for him, Hadith would not be among us. He said, But even then I stick to what I have to say. He's determined. Ya Imam, please, Ya Imam, please. And the Imam Ahmad said the Khalifa. He said, Ya Khalifa, Ya Amir al Mu'minin. So he acknowledged his imara. Said to him, give me one evidence from the Quran that the Qur'an is created. I cannot find any evidence. Give me evidence and I'll accept. Nothing personal. Al-Mu'tasim couldn't find anything. Then jumped. Then he said, take him to the prison. He went. Second day he came out. And this time, Ahmed ibn Abi Dawud and his scholars around there. Ahmed ibn Abi Dawud went into a debate with him. He said, I have evidence from the Qur'an that the Qur'an is created. He said, which one? He said, Allah says... إِنَّا Quran and Arabiyan. We have sent this Qur'an down in the Arabic language. He said, Imam Ahmad looked at him, he said, Allah did not say we have created the Qur'an in the Arabic language. He said, we have sent down the Qur'an in Arabic language. This does not mean it is created. Then they went into a debate. Here, there. And the debate went on and there is no evidence. And Imam Ahmad is reciting his evidence as if he could read them before his eyes even though he was in chains. As for al mutasim he's watching. He didn't care whether he's right or wrong. All he cared about was carry out the bequest of his brother. That's it. They put him back in the prison. Third day, fourth day, fifth day. Imam al is trying to yield. Please, I'll let you go with your family. Just say it and I'll let you go. Imam Ahmad determined, I will not say it. This is deen. It's not my religion. It's religion of Allah. On his way, I didn't mention when he was going through the deserts. On his way. Subhanallah. It was not an alim. It was not a scholar or a sheikh or a judge who came to him to give him strength. You know who came to him? A simple Bedouin who hardly knows anything, even reading or writing. He came up to him and he said, Ya Imam, I hear that you have been summoned to say that the Qur'an is created. Ya Imam, stand strong. Never say these words. Simple Bedouin. Imam Ahmad said, Allah, this is from Allah. Ta'yid, a support. Allah is sending a Bedouin from the desert. Which scholar is going to do? All the scholars said, we yield a Bedouin from the desert. When he reached Baghdad, they began. On the fifth or sixth day, the whip was brought out. And they brought the jalad, the whipper. They tied him up, took off his shirt and left his pants on. They put it on utensils that the people, mechanisms that Mu'tazila used to use. Like I'll give you an example. There was a barrel that that had steel thorns inside of it, prickly thorns like sharp razor swords. And they used to make a person wear it, and he had to stand. Stand for one week, two days, three days. And he couldn't move. Each way he moved, he would be stabbed. All these mechanisms... And they subjected Imam Ahmad to these different mechanisms of torture. They whipped him. And whipped him. The doctor who treated him later on says, I saw him being whipped as if he was whipped wallahi a thousand times. The doctor says, If a camel was subjected to the torture that Imam Ahmad was subjected to, the camel would have died. He said an elephant. I correct my words. An elephant would have died. But this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a miracle. First day, second day, whips after whips. The doctor says, I saw his back, there were like caves inside his back. Valleys inside his back. He said, when I came to, without any anesthetic, Imam Ahmed refused anesthetic. Why? Because it was alcohol. He refused to have medicine of haram. And he would resort to dua and supplications and he would go unconscious. And he would, the, the, the doctor would say, I would, I would have to take remnants of the ropes out of his body with knives. And sometimes... I would have to cut out meat on the knives off his off his back. So Imamahd was subjected, and he stood firm. All he had to say was, "The Quran is created." They said to him, "Do the four finger thing." He said, "Not even that." He was fasting one day, being tortured, and Mu'tasim is coming, saying to him, "Please, Imam, please, you are an Imam. So I don't want to. Do, I don't want to hurt you more than this." He Said, "Never." One day when he was fasting, Mu'tasim stood off his chair, because you see the Khalifa doesn't get off his chair. You see. He got up, he stood, and he stood for him. And the people around him saying, the Khalifa stood up for you, how could you make the Khalifa? And his fasting in the heat. And Imam Ahmad is fasting himself, he said, never. They brought him water. He said, I will not drink. I want to meet Allah fasting. But he didn't die. Then they saw him, after a few days of whipping, and this is in history. Believe it or not, allahu alam. They saw him say some words. They couldn't understand it. But one of the writers says, Later on, I understood what he was saying. He was saying, Oh Allah, do not let my awra show. His pants were slipping off. All this mattered not to him except that his awra would show. The person who's writing says, Wallahi, I saw. His pants by themselves somehow make their way up and they were tight on his body and never fell. Believe it or not. And that was the dua of Imam Ahmad. And he's saying that. When he entered the prison with his pain and torture, he would stay up in the night praying. Another support from Allah came to him. A drunken a man who was imprisoned for drinking alcohol. He came up to him and he said to him, Ya Imam. I have been whipped 40 lashes each time for drinking alcohol, and I have been imprisoned, I have now been imprisoned for 4 years because I drink alcohol. And I cannot resist my alcohol. And I have resisted the whipping for 4 years, because of something haram, alcohol. It says, you are resisting the whipping, for the sake of Allah, do not give in. For I resisted for alcohol, you can resist it for something fillah. And Imam Ahmad said, Allahu Akbar, this is more support from Allah. No scholar, no pious person, no one. A drunk, an alcoholic, and a Bedouin from the middle of the desert who knows nothing of reading and writing except sheep and camel and goats and their feces. This is where the support came from. It comes to show to us that don't, my brothers and sisters, think that you have to get your knowledge or wisdom or advice, even from a child you can get it. Even from a person on the street you can get it Wisdom of the truth is taken No matter who it comes from Otherwise it's arrogance and proud, proud, proudiness One prison inmate Now he made friends with all the prison inmates This man is subject I'm talking about 13 or 14 years of his life Imprisoned and out One man came to him And they felt sorry for him And he said to him "Yeah, Imam Just get yourself out of this We can't bear seeing you like this He looked at him and he said Are you a student of knowledge? He said yes he said, "Look outside the window of this small door of this prison." He looked outside, and he said, "Ma'athara, what do you see?" He said, "Ara unasan la yahmilun al I see people I cannot count in numbers, thousands and thousands of people waiting outside. You could see the open. They are carrying pencil. Uh, they are carrying pens, feathers of pens, and writing material that they write on. He said to them, "They are students of knowledge." They are waiting for what I have to say. They're going to write what I have to say, and for the generations to come in the future, this is what the knowledge will be. I am the last standing on this. I must stand firm. They are waiting for my word, and they're going to take it. The Khalifa, Al Mu'tasim, Died, and al his son took over. Same thing was affected by. But this time, Al-Wathiq, he looked at Imam, and he saw that there was social issue. He didn't want an uprising against him because the people, the amounts of people, who were sympathizing with Imam Ahmad were too many. So he had to stop the torture and take off his chains. For several years, Imam Ahmad taught the students from behind bars, until finally. One day he stood him up and, and this Ahmad ibn Abidu'ad was standing there. Al-Wathik was sitting. And Imam Ahmad was standing there. He said to him, to, the Ahmad ibn Abidu'ad, he came up to him and said, just say it, whisper it to my ear and I'll let you go. Whisper it, I have a connection with the Khalifa. He did, no one understood this Imam. This Imam didn't care about you or you or you. He died in this cause. Then he said to him, Ya Ahmad, give me one evidence and I will follow you. He said, Ar-Rahman Al-Quran The most merciful, he taught the Quran وسلم, Imam Ahmad said Allah did not say Ar-Rahman Al-Quran, created the Quran He said, Al-Quran, he taught the Quran This is not evidence Then he said to him these words He said, what you are saying Did the Prophet Muhammad Know it? He said yes Actually he said to him No, because he said yes He said yes, he needs evidence He said, Tayyib, did Abu Bakr know this? He said, no. He said, did Umar? he said yes. He said, did Umar ibn Khattab know this? He said, yes. He said, did they talk about it? He said, no. He said, al-Rasul sallallahu is silent about it. Abu Bakr is silent about it. Umar is silent about it. And do you think you're better than the Prophet sallallahu Abu Bakr and Umar to talk it? They stayed silent. Why can't you stay silent? And that's when it was the last straw. Al-Wathiq started to think with his head, the Khalifa. It says in the, in the narration that Al-Wathiq started laughing so badly that he fell backwards. You see the Khalifas have a special way of laughing. They've got to go on their back and lift their legs up. He fell back and lifted his leg up, saying, <laughs> Ya Ahmed ibn Abi Du'ad, the Prophet and Abu Bakr and Umar, they stayed silent and you had to open your big mouth. Until finally Al-Wathiq looked at her and he said, this is rubbish. Al-Wathiq died. But he didn't release him and and announce it. Harun, uh, another Khalifa came up. Allahu was Al-Wafiq, or the one after him. And he said, what is this? He released Imam Ahmad and he came to the Mu'tazila and he stopped them where they were. Some of them had to be put to death and some of them were put in the mechanisms of the torture which they used to torture the other people with. And the whole of the city Al-Khalifa announced that the Mu'tazila are rejected and refused. And this Imam has shown their their wrong. And then the people of the Medina, of the whole city came from Baghdad. And the Imams and all those who whipped him and tortured him, seeking his forgiveness, including the Khalifa. You know, like the uh, Australian, uh, the national apology for the Aboriginals, the Rudd government, like that. We apologize officially to Imam Ahmad and we hope that he'll forgive us. Imam Ahmad announced, he said, I forgive every person, every khalifa, every person who instigated this, every person who whipped me. And I forgive them with all my heart, except the Mu'tazilah. I don't forgive them. Why? Because if I forgive them, I am supporting a deviant sect. I don't forgive them. Imam Ahmad forgave in the cause of Allah. And this is the love of Allah. The love of Allah. When someone says, by Allah, he says, for the love of Allah, I forgive you. Abadan. He never took anything personally. I'll finish it off, inshallah, about his miracles, inshallah, I gave him. Once a crippled mother asked her son to go to Imam Ahmad while he was in his home. She was crippled and she said, go to Imam Ahmad and ask him to make dua for me for I hear his du'a is accepted when her son reached Imam Ahmad he said Imam my mother has sent me to make du'a for she is crippled the imam looked disappointed and he said to him you've come to ask me to make du'a for you you make du'a for me this is the humbleness and piety that I was talking about not saying yes I'm it make du'a for me I need your du'a so the son thought that imam didn't want to make du'a so he left When he reached the home, he found his mother standing up and walking. Imam Ahmad had made dua for his mother. Imam Ahmad never accepted any gifts from the government or money. His son Salih married a wealthy woman. And he bought some expensive furniture, about 4,000 dirhams. One day a fire lit up in his house and burnt all the furniture and everything. Imam Saleh said I am not and this was after his father's death he said I am not upset because my furniture was burnt but because I kept this garment which my father used to wear and he gave it to me after his death every time I prayed I wore it every time I went to the masjid I wore it every time I gave a halaqah I wore it a circle of knowledge so he entered into his house and he saw everything burnt he looked and guess what? He found the garment unburnt. Wallahi, this is in history. He said, everything was burnt except the garment of my father. So much so, Imam Ahmad knew that Salih was taking, uh, and Abdullah was taking money from Al-Wathiq. And uh, he never accepted money from him. So he said to his children, Salih and Abdullah, he said, now that you took money, and I know they're taking gifts from the, the Khalifa." Even the Khalifa, I think it was Harun Harun al-Rashid. And Harun al-Rashid loved Imam Ahmad so much. He loved him. And he was a pious person. But Imam Ahmad was determined, he didn't want to take money from the government. So he gave it in secret to his children, Saleh and Abdullah. He said, don't tell your dad. When Imam Ahmad found out, he said, Wallahi, I will not eat at your house anymore or sleep in your home on anything you have, because all of it comes from the money of the government. He didn't say it out of hatred. He spoke to his children. He loved his children, everything. But when they came to him, they said, Oh, Father, why don't you? Is it halal or haram? He said, No, no, sons, you can take it. It's okay, it's halal. But I have doubt. I'm just leaving it out of doubt. Once his son made aqiqah, he had a son a grandson, and his father came to him. I want to tell you something very important. He said to him, make sure that you give to the poor people first. They invited the ulama, they invited officials. And he was among the scholars who used to remember the poor people more than anyone else. Why? Because he was a poor person himself, and he was an orphan himself. One colleague said, I look at Ahmed just to learn manners in different occasions and positions. He always returned the favors ASAP. Al Mu'tasim, who tortured him, Al Mu'tasim, who tortured him, Imam Ahmad forgave him. I'll tell you why. He knew Al Mu'tasim had conquered a land near the Romans. Just because he had done this for the sake of Allah, Imam Ahmad, without Al Mu'tasim apologizing, without Al Mu'tasim going to him, and Imam Mu'tasim died wanting the torture and the imprisonment of Imam Ahmad Imam Ahmad just like that for knowing that Al-Mu'tasim conquered a land for Allah he said Oh Allah forgive Al-Mu'tasim it's about what sort of service that you do for Allah that the Mu'min forgives you you hurt me you talk about me you do all these things but if I'm truly a Mu'min I don't care if I see an act of piety from you, any act of piety, I'll say, you know what, because he or she prays five times a day, because he or she gives in charity, I'm just going to forgive them for Allah. And Imam Ahmad used to say, ماذا ينفعك أن يعذب أخوك المسلم بسببك? What benefit will you get on the Day of Judgment? That your brother or your sister be tortured by Allah because of you. What benefit are you going to get of that? So he said, I forgive Al Al-Mu'tasim." And I ask Allah to make me a ransom for all those misguided. Allahu Akbar. All those who are misguided, I want Allah to make me a ransom for them on the Day of Judgment. One time Imam Shafi'i, it moves the heart really, to a person to forgive someone else. Just because you say, I want me to be a ransom on the day of judgment for these people who are misguided even if they hurt me, is piety beyond piety. We say today he's a miskin hadafair, he's a darwish, he gets stepped on. He gets stepped on. Al Butayib too much, his heart is too soft. And that's the reason why R.A.W. said, I saw the majority of people in Jannah Al-Fuqara, the poor people, the soft ones. A Shafi'i went to Egypt and farewelled Mecca. And he said to Ahmad, I leave behind me a man of great knowledge. I will miss him. Imam Ahmad promised him that he will visit him in Egypt. But time passed and Imam Ahmad didn't have the financial means. So Imam Shafi'i got a little bit upset. So he sent a letter with one of his students saying to Imam Ahmad, and Imam Ahmad sent a letter to him saying, I have no money, I can't go, but I will inshallah. So Shafi'i got him a job as a judge in Yemen. He sent a letter to Imam Ahmad and said, I got you a job in, in Yemen so that you can have money so you can come and visit me. Imam Ahmad replied to him and said, I will never accept a post with the government. And Imam Shafi'i kept sending and saying, Oh, Abu Abdullah, and, uh, Imam Ahmad said to him, Oh, Abu Abdullah to Imam Shafi'i. Please don't mention this to me. I've said no. Imam Shafi kept on insisting, take it, take it, take it, several to eight, twelve times. Till finally Imam Ahmad sent him a letter saying, Oh Abu Abdullah, if you bring up this subject to me again, you will never see me again. He didn't say this. I know it seems harsh or stubborn, but wallah, he did it for a different... This is piety from his side. Not to be rude. And Imam Shafi shafii understood what he meant. He's not just saying it to any person. Imam al-Shafi'i understood what Imam Ahmad is saying. SubhanAllah, Imam al-Shafi'i died, and Imam Ahmad couldn't have the means to visit him, but he went there two months after his death. He was traveling, takes him four months to reach, right? He thought, I'll catch him, but subhanAllah, he didn't meet him. And we said last week that Imam Shafi shafii died, also as a result of the beating of other students. This was, some say, semi-murder. And Imam Ahmad couldn't reach him. He said, the biggest regret for me was that I couldn't see my beloved Imam Shafi. Two months he missed him. He missed him two months later. So he visited his grave and he made dua for him and everything. Uh, one last, uh, one few more things. His son Salih said, my dad ordered me to buy a gift one day worth five dirhams. He didn't have much money. I bought a gift worth five dirhams for my neighbor. So when I asked him, "Father, why did you order me to do that?", he said, "Because yesterday I saw my neighbor give a gift to my son Sa'id. Sa'id was about two or one years old. Two years old. I saw him give him a gift. So I bought gifts for his children the next day. He didn't want anyone to make him feel poor. He had a dignity. He loved this." And he brought him love with other people. Someone who was jealous said to Al-Mutawakkil, I'm sorry to have said Harun al-Rashid, the next Khalifa was Al-Mutawakkil, who loved him. (laughs) One person was jealous, said to Al-Mutawakkil, Ahmed doesn't want to take gifts or uh, money from you because he doesn't accept your position of ruling. Maybe because he says it's not legitimate, wanted to make fitna. Al-Mutawakkil said to him, If my father Al-Mu'tasim, he was his father, resurrected and told me, Ahmad had something against you, I would not believe him. Everybody knew Imam Ahmad's intention. This is how Imam Ahmad was known. And lastly, my dear brothers and sisters in Islam, Imam Ahmad Ibn Hamdal, when he passed this fitna and this trial, hundreds of thousands of people around the world began to remember him. The day that he died, there is an exaggeration. They say about a million people followed his janazah. And some people say, exaggerating, they said, when he died, certain number of rabbis and certain number of priests embraced Islam. And this is of course uh, not true because his own students said, this is not true, even his children. He said, you know what, if he died and uh, only one person embraced Islam, that will be enough, mashaAllah. After he died, there was a great funeral for him. It is said that about 100,000 attended his funeral, that is more likely. The government stopped and it was a national it was a national. uh, Any holiday, if you like. They stopped everything. People closed their shops. The government stopped their work, everybody to attend the funeral of Imam Ahmed. After this 15 years of torture, Allahu Akbar. My dear brothers and sisters in Islam, what happened after him was a disaster. His students became overzealous and extreme Like the students of Imam Malik who beat up Imam Shafi'i And they began to become too rigid, too strict, beyond measure Saying, some of them even went to the extent of saying After the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam No one is more important or valuable or pious than Imam Ahmed Not even more than Abu Bakr was not even more than him and some said, only Abu Bakr and Umar. But why? They said because Imam Ahmad went through the torture of Khalq al-Quran. Abu Bakr and Umar and all of those went through trials, but they had supporters. As for Imam Ahmad, he had no supporters. And this is wallahi, extreme, zealous, mutanatta. this is haram. They went to the extent of saying, there is no greater faqih than Imam Ahmad on the face of the earth. And this is again, overzealous approach, extremism. Al-Rasul used to say, He said it three times, soon to destruction of the extremists. And he has said, La tatruni kama ibn Maryam Do not overpraise me like the Christians praised, overpraised Jesus son of Mary until they turned him into a god. And unfortunately, these students and students of their students became more and more and more. It is said that, what not said, this is true, the fact that, uh, students, students, what they started to do was they went and started to do this police of Amr al-Ma'ruf wa Nahi al-Munkar commanding good and prohibiting evil. They said that they were the ones who carried sticks and they would walk in the streets. And If they see a woman that was showing her face, for example, they would carry the stick and they would uh, subject her to whipping. And uh, they used to walk with this, if a person didn't go to the Salat straight away, they would whip him. There was a harsh approach that if Imam Ahmed was there, he would whip them. Uh, so much so that they went beyond measure taking the law into their own hands going beyond the khalifa sometimes and later on some of these students what they would do is they would instigate something in order to prove the madhab of Imam Ahmad to be right just to pick up a fight I remember even till now yani some of these people with this approach whether it be from the Ahnaf, or the Hambali's or the Shafi'is, or the Malikis, we find this same approach. But they pick on the Hambali's. the Hambali's pick on the Shafi'is and the Hanafis, and, and they call them these names, Hanafi, Shafi, Hanbali. Wallahi, I, I'm, I'm against that. People calling themselves like that. You can say, I follow this madhab, no worries. No worries, you actually follow it. SubhanAllah, these were great imams. But don't be blind followers to the point where you divide and you begin not to pray behind the person, you begin to fight over insignificant issues, wallahi al-azim. To the point where a person would... A cross in front of a person who's praying, right? Cross in front of him. I'm almost done. Cross in front of him to instigate a fight. When the person who's this poor person, simple man, will say, "Why did you cross in front of me?" and they begin to fight, and he says, "What's wrong with you?" and he will say to him, "You cut off my prayer." and he will say, "You're a jah and you're ignorant. Didn't you know that uh, if you're praying behind the imam, I, can't, I don't cut off your prayer. Only if I pass in front of the imam. What? What's the big deal that you're, what, you're picking a fight with your brother? Yani we do more haram than this, yani like Umar radiallahu anhu. He did a mistake like this. As a khalifa, one day he climbed up a ladder and he looked in the backyard of someone. And he found them drinking alcohol. And he said, ah, I caught you. Drinking alcohol under the Islamic ruling? Come to be whipped. The person there, he said, okay ya imam, amir al muminin if, if we did one thing wrong, I did one thing wrong, you did three things wrong. He said, number one, you spied and that's haram number two you entered through the back of the house when Allah says enter the house from its front doors and number three uh, number three you exposed my sin in public when it was in secret Amir al muminin looked at him and he said and he started to cry and he said you're right I fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but don't drink again and he went away like this we learn not to be overzealous, taking law of our own hands, watching as if we're police, haram and halal police. Finally, brothers and sisters in Islam, I did not talk about the four imams so that you know to impose upon you this madhab better than that madhab or whatever. I wanted you to, to learn the manner of how these scholars are as role models, the manner of their mothers, the manner of their upbringing, their piety. The way they debated in respect, the way they respected each other, the way they reasoned, the way they uh, feared Allah before anything else, and how uh, knowledge is not about information that you know, but however it is with the verse of the Quran which I started off with, and now I end it with it truly the ones who truly fear Allah are the ones who are scholars and Allah says shahidallahu annahu <speaking> la ilaha <in> illa huwa <Hebrew> wal malaikatu wal wa wal malaikatu wa ulul ilmi qaimam bil qist Allah by witness and his angels Allah by witness there is no god but he and these angels are in the high ranks. And those endued with knowledge are in high ranks. Why? They are the ones in Jude with knowledge who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Their motto is, I do not know when they don't know. And their fear is to say something which is wrong. And their priority is the unity of the Muslims, the peace among the Muslims, the harmony among the Muslims, not the division among the Muslims. This was their intention and this was their goal. <laughs> I thank you for listening. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have made me a tool of His in some guidance in your life. Please brothers and sisters, you look this up, you read about it, you learn into it inshallah and teach others, make dua for me. And I will make du'a for you. I ask Allah subhanahu wa taala to make us among the true scholars, the true learned ones, full of wisdom, full of piety, and gather us with them on the day of judgment. I would like to thank the Islamic Information Services Network of Australia for inviting me and having this opportunity to gain some rewards. Insha'allah. I ask Allah to have accepted. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Allahumma صلي على محمد رسول الله Allahumma صلي على محمد نبي الله Allahumma صلي على محمد رسول الله Allahumma صلي على